Gun sales fall 20% in June, plus crime analyst Jeff Asher on the recent decline in the murder rate. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free weekly newsletter right now if you want to keep up with what's going on with guns in America. This week, we are talking about the murder rate and signs that it may be declining. And to do that, we're having a, a crime data analyst on, Jeff Asher from AH Datalytics is on with us today. How are you doing, Jeff? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the show. Can you tell people a little bit more about yourself and your background, just for anybody who who doesn't know you yet? Yeah. Data analyst based in New Orleans. Uh, I have a company, as you mentioned, AH Datalytics. We do data consulting for a host of organizations throughout the public sector with a, a emphasis on law enforcement. So working with police departments, working with prosecutor offices, um, but but basically any organization that needs a little bit of data help and uh, wants the analytics or wants the ability to analyze their data and understand it in an easier way, um, we're hoping that they call us. So that's generally what we do. Nice. And you have a background doing this sort of work uh, before you, you went out into the private sector, right? Yeah, I was with uh, New Orleans Police Department for a couple of years. I'm a native New Orleanian. For that, I was with the federal government for seven years doing data analysis and analysis. And so um, I got to writing and realized that back home, nobody was doing this type of work. Um, and then as I sort of started to branch out on my own, realized that nobody was really writing towards crime data that's not doing it with some sort of prior bias and, you know, very... Uh, non-emotional stance. So, and, you know, in general, if you can string two sentences together, you're sort of ahead of the pack, I've found. So um, that's where I started to do analysis. Yeah. And you've written for a number of major publications like The Atlantic and CNN and and several others as well. But you you also have your own Substack that you write uh, where you focus on, on data, data analytics. And you uh, have just published a piece recently on the murder rate at mid-year here, we wrote about it over at the Reload because uh, what you found was pretty interesting. What What is the situation looking at looking like now halfway through 2023? So there's 18,000 law enforcement agencies nationwide, and they all report data in different formats. Some don't report at all. They report uh, data, some publicly on their websites, most report it to the FBI. And so what we found is that if you get a collection of agencies, a sample of, you know, generally 25, 50, 75 or 100 of the largest agencies, you can kind of predict what the national trend is and what is happening um, nationwide. And even through this point in what mid-July right now, it's generally predictive of where we're going to be at the end of the year. Something like 2020 can happen and you're, you know, as the, the months go on, you're seeing the change. But generally in normal years, if you have enough cities of data and you've got late enough in the year, you can predict what's going to happen when the FBI data comes out. The FBI is not going to release their data until, you know, for 2023 until nine or 10 months after the fact. 
So we're not going to have 2023 data until September, October of 2024. So using a sample, we're able to accurately understand the trend without seeing it precisely. And so what we have is we have 104 cities right now. We added our 104th city today. And the data for those cities shows about an 11% decline this year relative to last year. Um, if you historically look at, at the data, you can see that big cities tend to overstate the national trend. So if murder is up 6% in big cities, you would expect maybe murders up 3% nationally. If it's down 8% in big cities, you'd expect maybe it's down 5 or 6% nationally. And so if it's down 11% in our big city sample, that is suggestive of somewhere in the 8 to 10% range decline nationally, which it doesn't sound that impressive, but murder tends to go up or down by a couple of percentage points. Um, right. So, so 10% would be a pretty tremendous it be, change. It would be the largest change ever recorded. The largest previous percent decline would be 9% in 1996. And it would also, if we have a double-digit decline in murder this year, it would be the first time that we ever had 2,000 fewer murders from one year to the next. So it's not just that we have fewer murders now, it's that we're having a substantial decline in murder. Even if it's not, even if it doesn't exceed 1996, it's still a substantial decline after what was in 2020, the largest one-year increase ever reported. Wow. Yeah, so that's pretty remarkable uh, what, what you're finding at this point in time. It's, it's certainly not an insignificant change. You're talking about a really substantial downturn in murder in the United States from what we're seeing uh, in the sample so far. Yeah. And it's the third quarter. I mean, we're not talking about it being, you know, running off the clock and, and being in victory formation or anything like that. Um, so things could still change. We do have a big city sample. And so it, it's possible that our big city sample is more overstating than typical the national trend. But it looks like we're going to see a decline no matter what. A large decline is most likely in the cards. Um, but I should note that even a 10 percent decline this year would still leave us 30 or so percent above um, 2014's low it would still leave us substantially above 2019 before we had the 2020 surge. And so we're still talking about way too many murders in America. And we're also seeing places like Cleveland, D.C., Memphis, Kansas City, where the national trend is seeing a decline. But these cities are seeing, in some cases, big increases. And so it's it's yes, nationally, we're seeing a decline, but it's two thirds or 70% of our sample, it's not every city. And I think that those are important caveats to keep in mind. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's not an across the board decline necessarily. Uh, so, so how does that even out? Are you seeing major declines in some cities? Are you seeing declines in most cities? And then there's a couple outliers like DC and the other cities you mentioned. How, how does it break out in the data? So in most cities, um, I think only 31 of the 104 cities are having an increase this year so far. There have been pretty substantial declines in a number of places. New Orleans, where I am, murders down 20%. And that comes after last year, where New Orleans had the highest murder rate the city had achieved since before Katrina. Um, Buffalo, New York, murders down 
There were 42 murders in Buffalo, um, including the, the horrendous mass shooting in the supermarket um, in 2022 through June. This year, they're at 16. Um, Chicago has seen a, a steady 10% decline. And if you include that on top of last year, where Chicago also saw a 10% decline, it's a 20% two-year decline, which is pretty significant for Chicago. New York murders down 10%, but shootings are down 25%. Philadelphia murders down, I think, close to 30%. Jackson, Mississippi, which also had probably the highest murder rate of any city over 150,000 last year, um, is seeing a big decline. Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which also saw a big increase. Minneapolis, Milwaukee, all seeing big decreases. So in any sample where you're seeing, you're not going to see uniform declines, even in 2020, only 80% of our sample big city city, big city sample saw an increase. So there were still 20% of our sample that had a decrease in murder, despite the historic increase in 2020. There are a lot more examples of cities that are seeing big decreases than there are cities that are seeing big increases. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. So, uh, and that's pretty typical. Like you said, it's not, you, you, you don't expect every city to have, to have a matching decline or matching increase. Um, when, when you're looking year to year, unless there's something particularly abnormal going on. Right. Right. And the great crime decline, which began in 92 and went for six years of, I think 40% decrease nationally over six years, um, nationally, it was a huge decline. In New Orleans, it didn't begin until 1995. New Orleans had in 94, over 400 murders for a city of 500,000. It was um, a, a, the worst year in terms of murder rate for any city that had at that point ever been recorded in the US. And so for New Orleans to have its worst, worst murder rate three years into the great crime decline, um, I think is a good example of the fact that we should not expect uniform across the board because it's not just one thing that's leading to the decline. It's not just one factor. And in different places, they're going to feel things differently. And so that's going to lead to different trends. Hmm. Good. Yeah. And I want to, I definitely want to talk a little bit more about sort of the historical uh, gun, gun murder, uh, just murder rate in the United States and what we've seen the last three years um, and where things may be headed. But first, let's talk a little bit more about the methodology here uh, and, and maybe just sort of uh, your view on how well we're doing right now about tracking murder and gun and just crime generally, uh, given sort of the FBI's switch over in methodology uh, for how they're collecting data. We talked about this on a previous podcast that I encourage people to listen to, but um First, let's talk about your uh, your specific model. You, you gave us a little bit of insight into it earlier, and then I want to talk about what's going on with the FBI. But so you have you have 104 cities, basically police departments that you're taking data from. How does that process work? Because they're not they're not sending it to you. It's not like the FBI where where the FBI is requesting data from every police agency basically in the country, and they send it in. It's voluntary, but it it has a it has historically had a pretty high rate of uh compliance how does how do you how does your organization actually go through and and collect this data we we do it the hard way we go through manually and uh once a week we click on we have if you go to our website hdatalytics.com you can go to the year to date murder dashboard there's a link 
that sends you to every source. And so probably 99 or 100 of the 104 agencies are coming from the agency themselves or from the major chiefs of police um, where they put out a report every quarter. So we've got about 15 agencies that we're using their data. But so it's official. Part, it's official data from yes. the police departments. Yeah, it's okay. just flow. So we only have data through the first quarter for those agencies. Um, the issue with our methodology is that we have some cities that produce data daily. We have Washington, D.C., Kansas City, New Orleans, St. Louis. They produce daily data on their murder numbers. Other cities do it weekly. Philadelphia puts out a great report every week. Um, Chicago, New York does the same thing. Some agencies do it monthly and they report the data reasonably quickly um, within the first two or three weeks of the next month. Some agencies do it quarterly. Some agencies do it monthly. But San, Ber San Bernardino, California is a good one. They've only got data through February. They do it monthly, but they haven't published any data since February. Uh, Newark is another one, has not published since April. So it's very frustrating to see a lot of these agencies that there's no standard practice for how often to publish. There's no standard practice for how to publish. DC, you click the button, it goes to the website. They show you the number of murders this year. They show you the number of murders last year. Other places you get a PDF. Some places like Memphis, we because Memphis is such an important city because of what's happening there to have in our sample, we have to download their homicide data from, they, they provide it on an incident basis. So we download the data and compare how many incidents this year versus how many incidents last year. So it can be a little bit challenging with some agencies. It makes for some places that we've, we've got a lot of confidence in and some places where I really wish that I had data that, that was more up to date and we just don't. And that's just, that's, that's the best system. If there was a better system, we would use it. Uh, it if we could scrape the data from every agency, we, we would do that. But Agencies frequently aren't using the same addresses. They aren't using the same methodology. Um, I'm not the most technical person in the world. I'm not sure how to, to scrape a PDF that's published monthly on a different uh, with a different web address each month. So it's uh, it can be very challenging. And the only solution is just sort of brute force it every month or every week. Yeah, so it's very a very time intensive process. It sounds like and. Uh... Uh, but but it, it is coming from official sources, which is a little bit different, I guess, to the other uh, one of the other measures that's out there. It's not the FBI. Before we get to them, there's gun violence archive, which you did talk about in your uh, in your piece. And we've interviewed the, the head of uh, gun violence archive before. You, you know, they're most famous for their mass shooting counter that gets a lot of attention in media. But they do. They track all kinds of different incidents uh, or they try to. But they basically. Uh, their methodology is to use uh, re reports, like public report, like from the media, to track things. Right? That that's one distinction between the two of you. Yeah, and and they're doing everywhere, and they're doing an aggregated count. It, um, I I think that they are a wonderful source of information. When I have, we know exactly how many people were shot in Philadelphia this year because Philadelphia's police department has put that data out there, so we can compare their data to gun violence archive, how many people they say have been shot in Philadelphia, and we will see a difference. And so their methodology, I find to be inaccurate or imprecise, but generally accurate. Right. So if you compare their right. trend with Philadelphia's trend, the numbers won't be the same, but the trends will be the same. Right. And so I find them to be a good 
sort of additional means of showing that our sample is not crazy, that this is actually what's happening nationwide. Yeah, I think the main critique for them, and again, we have a whole podcast where we get into these discussions with the founder of GBA, but uh, is more about their uh, definitions of things like mass shootings than rather than their actual data that they've collected. Uh, but you, you also said in that, in your piece that their numbers, uh, give further credence to your, to your analysis for this mid-year, uh, uh estimate on where gun, where, sorry, <laughs> keep adding gun in there, just murder rates for where the murder rate is. I, the gun murder rate is a slightly different statistic than the murder rate, not something that you guys, uh, have tracked, right? Uh, but no, uh, and, yeah. And we, we sort of assume that non-gun murders are kind of stable. They've been generally stable for the last years, decades in the U.S. And it's re- really been changes in, in shootings that has been what's driven the U.S. murder rate. So, sure. um, yeah, there, you can, you can compare their data and their collection to the national trend and see the same thing. Um, it's not as reliable, I think, from a, we know that, that gun, um, or excuse me, that the big city sample overstates the national trend. I know that I can show that year after year for the last two and a half decades. With the gun violence archive, it's sort of up or down from the national trend. It's usually within about 3% as well, but there's no predictable way of knowing whether or not it's up or down from the national trend. And so, Um, And then some some years it's been very close. Some years it's been off by five or six percent. So it's it's hard to say um, other than that both of these metrics are pointing in the same direction, which hopefully gives some confidence that that direction is accurate. Yeah, I think that's the interesting thing there. I mean, certainly the gun violence archive, one critique of their methodology is just that they're relying on media reports, which are not going to cover everything. This is sort of a much more relevant to things like defensive gun use than it is to murder because murder is much, much, much more likely to get covered in local media than a defensive gun use situation where no shots are fired or maybe the police aren't even informed of it. But that's obviously a completely separate situation, which we had with the head of gun violence archive and people can listen to. But the important bit is that you've got these two substantially different methodologies, but they're both showing the same thing. Uh, which is a decline in murder through the first six months of 2023. Now, uh, you mentioned earlier the FBI, and we'll, we'll get maybe a more complete picture of what's going on once their numbers come out. But of course, that won't be for uh, a year and a half, I guess, or maybe a little bit less than a year and a half. Like, we don't have 2022 numbers from the FBI yet, uh, right? So, uh, so we're going to have to wait a while before we see the FBI's numbers. But I do want to talk and get your view on uh, their methodology issues uh, because it, somewhat unfortunately, the FBI has decided to switch to a new system for reporting crime data uh, right as the murder spike was happening, right? They, they changed how they're bringing in numbers from police departments. And unfortunately, when you do that, uh, even if the new system is better, when when these when this is a voluntary program, you're going to have a lot of police departments that a lot of government institutions that just aren't aren't going to follow over, at least not right away. And I, that's basically what we've seen. Right. They've lost a lot of uh, a lot of departments reporting to them. Uh, 
correct? So they did. They did in 2021. Um, only about 65% of the U.S. population was covered by an agency that reported to NIBRS. And only about 52% of the U.S. population was covered by an agency that reported 12 months of data to NIBRS. Like right. Chicago Police Department reported only seven months of data to NIBRS because they weren't NIBRS compliant for the first five months of the year. And that's their new, that's the new system. That's the acronym. Right. Um, there is good news, though, and I don't know why the FBI hasn't been talking about this publicly, but they are going to, in 2022, allow agencies to report the old way as well. So mm. it used to be back in 2019, 2020, it was kind of an even split, maybe 55, 45, as far as agencies reporting via NIBRS and agencies reporting via the summary reporting system, which is a system that's been in use for 90 something years. So for 2022, they're going to allow agencies that did not make the transition to NIBRS to submit their crime data um, so that it can be included in the estimates. So in theory, this should make the estimates much stronger for 2022 and beyond. Um, the, the, and again, this, it's something that we don't know exactly how much of an impact this is going to have. It's something that I've been told several times by the FBI, but they haven't talked about sort of this implementation. Um, so is it plausible that agencies will report 2022 data and um, and will do it at the same level? Yeah. Is it possible that some agencies that just were didn't make the NIBRS transition and have just decided not to report data at all, even though they can? It's also possible for that. So. It's hard to say exactly what that number would be, but in theory, the, the estimates for 2022 and beyond will be much stronger than they were in 2021, which will just, it'll be an asterisk forever. Yeah, because they, they lost like 5,000 police departments, if you look at at least what they're saying on their website uh, for their mm -hmm. estimates in, in 2021. So, so does that mean they're just going to have like one bad year? 2021 is just going to be a year where they had really bad numbers, and then it goes back to having 80 plus percent. Uh, compliant, you know, 80 plus percent of the, the country covered by these reports. Um, yeah, it, it looks that way. And it used to be 95 to 97 percent of agencies right. would, would report yeah. the old system. So um, Fascinating. It, it it does look like there's going to be a a much better report in 2022. But don't hold That's me good. to that. Don't don't call me back on here. If, yeah, if I'll, I'll hold the FBI to that. that. It'll be yeah. their responsibility. Don't worry. But uh, yeah, because that'd be nice because that's one of the things that's gone on is like, just as we're, you know, because we had decades there. I know that the murder spike sort of started before 2020. There was an increase that was happening. Uh, you alluded to like 2014 being a low point before. But uh, but obviously 2020 was a big outlier and this is huge increase in, in murder throughout the country. Um, and, and yet and, and it continued on and it has continued on. And no one, obviously, it's harder to track that stuff uh, when the FBI's numbers aren't reliable. Um, and, and so it's just like this terrible timing that they went through where they're like, all right, we're going to try to force everyone into this new system right as, uh, you know, crime data was becoming much more uh, relevant to everybody, everyday life and much more attention was being paid to it. Um, but yeah, so hopefully they'll... Hopefully, uh, you know, as you're saying here, we'll get better numbers uh, coming down the line. Yeah, yeah. It, it it is a shame. Um, I think if you talk to them, they'll say that it was sort of a necessary evil to just sort of 
give agencies a kick in the pants to to start to report via the new system. Um, whether or not that's actually true, there's there's no way to know for sure. But it uh, hopefully it is moving on from the problematic stage to the being solved stage. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the these historic trends. Right. Um, so you mentioned there the this crime drop that we saw in the 90s. Right. Um, and then that that sustained for a very long time. We've been living through several decades of relatively low murder rate in the United States, you know, for for the United States, not necessarily compared to, uh, you know, Western European countries or anything like that. But for the United States, the murder rate was much lower than it had been. And it had stayed low um, until we got to 2020. Right. And then it jumped back up and we were getting closer to those uh, the bad days, the good, bad, <laughs> the uh, the bad old days of high murder rates. And, uh, you know, it hasn't been clear whether this was going to be a, you know, a, a brief spike. Things would go back down to where they had been in the 2000s and 2010s or if this was going to become a new uh, new normal in America, where we were seeing really, uh, really unacceptable murder rates, um, like we used to. Uh, so, can you just give us some insight into, you know, what what the general uh, thought has been on? Uh, to me, I'd never really seen a great explanation for why um, the the murder rate dipped and stayed low for that time period. There's a lot of politically motivated reasonings out there, obviously. And I haven't seen a great explanation for um, our current environment either or why it should go one way or the other. Do you have thoughts on uh, maybe just starting with the, you know, that crime drop in the 90s and how the country was able to sustain that? Yeah, I, it, I think it's hard to say with certainty. And I think that generally it's complicated is the best answer. Um, mm-hmm. I know it's like the least satisfying answer to give in an environment like this, but well, as long as it's that, the true answer, that's what we want. Right. right. I, I think anybody selling you, it was X or it was Y is sort of selling you a, a bill of goods and is not, um, being reflective of the complexity of the situation. Um, I think that in the nineties or the, the late nineties, early two thousands, um, Strong economic conditions, the, you know, the, uh, there was a, a big surge in policing, um, in the early yeah, the and mid 90s. Um, yeah, the crime bill. I think that there was, um, the, you sort of saw a leveling off of arrests. They didn't continue to go up, um, nationally and for a lot of offenses that maybe drove mass incarceration, drove issues like that. Um, it's the, the level of, um, the, you know, the, the, the crack boom, I don't know exactly what you, how you would describe it, but that, that era sort of faded and went away. Um, so I think that, and then also the other thing, there's a sociologist at, who, where is he now? Princeton, maybe, um, Patrick Sharkey, who talks about this sort of boon and investment in social programs and that for every, um, million or two million or three million dollars that were spent on social programs targeting people that were engaged in behaviors that might lead to gun violence led to a one or two percent decline in murder rate in the city. And so you had all of these things, these policing and non-policing elements that sort of came together 
and I think that all of them coming together sort of weaves the tale of how murder tended to go down. Um, I don't think that we can necessarily point to exactly what the recipe was, but I think that all of those things make sense as drivers. Very similarly in 2020, we can kind of point to what a few of the explanations that make the most sense are, and each person is going to be different. And I think the same same caveat holds that anybody telling you that it's X or it's Y is giving way too much confidence to um, to the explanation because 80% of cities saw an increase. 80% of cities did not see giant increases in protests. 80% of cities did not see um, waves of police resignations and depolicing. So what the actual explanation was is to, to explain such a national increase, I think you have to look toward the national trends. And so um, we, we know, so we, we, we have to sort of go through the chronology of 2020. Murder was up. It was up about 7% through the first quarter through, through sort of April, early May. And we can see that from the um, FBI's supplementary homicide report data. So we know that and that's like that's up. the onset of the the pandemic period. Right that's there. the onset of the pandemic. So it's before not before the, riot, the, before the protests and riots the and stuff. Yeah. Right. It, there wasn't a, it, it wasn't, you know, the pandemic happened and then murder went up in the U.S. That that clearly did not happen in May, June, July, August of 2020. There was this big surge in gun violence. Um, it was guns. It was, uh, you know, the number of firearms or the share of, of murders that were committed via firearm in 2020 was uh, up over 70 percent. And that was by far the largest percentage ever recorded. Um, that figure has been sort of going up steadily, but it went up a lot in 2020. Um, and using the FBI data, we can see that sort of non-firearm murders were generally steady year on year. Gun firearm murders went up big. As far as how to explain it, I point to um, the the sort of the depolicing and the loss of police legitimacy, loss in police trust after the murder of George Floyd, all of the protests. Um, I think that those are symptoms of the same disease. If you've read, have you read Ghetto Side uh, by Jill Leovi, it's it's probably it's it's a terrific book. It's it's all about murder in Los Angeles, but I think it speaks to the importance of what she calls um, the the monopoly of state violence so that the police are the ones that are the only ones that can make arrests, that can solve murders, that can um, basically delve out justice for killings that have happened. And in the absence of that, in the absence of trust that the police are going to do that, then you're going to see this sort of cycle of violence that is very difficult to interrupt. So you've got retribution killings, you've got um, lots of arguments, lots of uh, uh, sort of drug deals gone bad. Everybody's in a sort of a weird place mentally after the pandemic. Um, and so you get this environment where you've also seen this pullback in policing in a lot of places. And it's hard to say causally whether it was this sort of loss of trust or whether it was this sort of loss of policing happening. Um, but they're, they're definitely both happening at the same time. And the question is, are they causally linked or are they are police pulling back because the people are protesting? Um, 
And so these things are just sort of happening at the same time. And then the other factor that I think is important is that, as you've noted, there was this big surge in firearm sales that predated the um, George Floyd. It started in, in the early 2020. And what uh, so we had this big surge in firearm sales. And what we see in um, I did a piece on this with Rob Arthur in, I think, Vox. But. If you look at, we took data from on arrests and stops in 10 cities that had data. And starting in March, April, the share of stops and arrests where a firearm is found um, goes, it skyrockets in all of these places. And so the, the implication here is that either one, police suddenly got really good at figuring out which car had a firearm in it, or two, with the firearm sales, there was a big increase in the number of people that the share of people that were carrying firearms. And so I think that you could build the argument, not that firearms are a cause here. It's not that, again, we didn't see a, a surge in firearm sales and then all of a sudden we saw a surge in violence, but that the surge in, in people carrying firearms meant that a lot of situations that maybe previously would not have had a firearm in, involved suddenly this argument has a firearm involved because a lot more people are carrying firearms during the pandemic. Um, so that's my, my conceptual, my way of con conceptually putting it together, but I don't have a lot of data there. I've got a lot of, of individual pieces that I think make sense to me. I don't know that that's necessarily the answer though. Right. And I do think there's a couple of critiques I would have of the, of the last bit, at least I, I, cause I do agree with you that there's a lot of, uh, probably nuance in what's happening here. And it's not just one factor that played a role in the murder spike, right? It's probably the pandemic. There was, there was also a lot of prisoner releases at the beginning of the pandemic that happened as well. You know, whether they were, whether those prisoners went on, how many of them went on to commit murder, I think is not something that is known. Um, and it may not be a major driver of what happened either, but that's another factor. Um, you know, certainly, uh, like you talked about, the police pullback. Although, I, if I remember correctly, the murder rate increased, uh, like you mentioned, in places that weren't directly affected by protests or police uh, resignations or um, and even happened in rural areas as well. It wasn't just city areas that saw this increase. So that sort of, under, you know, I, I'm sure that played a role but probably not the role, the only role, right? Uh, and the same thing with firearm sales, right? Uh, you know, during that period of time that we talked about earlier where uh, we had the sustained low murder rate, we also saw a lot of uh, increase in firearm sales during that period. Uh, and then also, uh, you know, during the beginning of the pandemic, or sorry, the well, the beginning of the pandemic, huge spike in sales, the rioting saw another huge spike in sales. Um, but... Uh, while that meant there were a lot more people who owned guns than before, probably a lot of new gun owners in that pool. The reason we know there was a spike in sales, right, is not because there's a national registry that tells you who all owns guns or how many are sold every year. It's because of background checks, right? right. We count the background checks as an analog for gun sales, which means that the people who bought those guns could pass a background check. And I think it's unlikely that they were... Uh, that a substantial number of those people are who drove the spike. Um, and, and even with that, that bit, um, cause I remember reading actually that piece at the time and it is interesting, 
But I think Robert Verbruggen, who we've had on the podcast before uh, over at NRO, wrote uh, a, a response to that piece that I thought was made more sense to me because, you know, the, there was now I will say there was a slight increase in the number of guns that were recently sold showing up uh, in ATF trace numbers because most most trace guns, most crime guns are eight to 10 years old, right? The, the average, I think, is 8.9. It came down a little bit during the pandemic. So there probably was some amount of firearms being bought, uh, you know, an increase in the number of guns that were recently bought going uh, and showing up in crime, at crime scenes. The trace data isn't specific to murders, but, but you know, it's, there's still probably just gives you a little bit of a correlation there. But um, but I will say, like, it, it probably had more to do with uh, because people being stopped uh, by the police and having guns found on them are, depending on what city you're in and the laws there, are they're probably not uh, people who could legally own guns anyway. Uh, and so this, what you probably saw was an increase in both your sort of law abiding people wanting to buy guns for all the, because of all the chaos going on. And then also, you know, criminals, frankly, their motivations for wanting guns and carrying guns are very similar to everyone else, right? Which is that they want to protect themselves. Um, now a criminal carrying a gun on the street is probably trying to protect themselves from somebody else who's probably not allowed to legally have a gun uh, on the street either. And it's probably saw an increase in both of those groups having guns on them if that makes any sense i mean obviously there's it's not like criminal and non-criminal and people stay those roles forever it's not that black and white obviously but but i think generally speaking verbruggen's theory was both that regular that you know non-criminals were buying guns for protection and then also criminals tended to carry guns more often is perhaps what was going on and that led perhaps is part of what led to this increase in in fatal shootings, uh, but you know, it, it involved in in street crime. Yeah, absolutely. And I would I would make a distinction there for for my purposes. Um, I think that the other you, you sort of mentioned the ATF data. It wasn't just a small increase. It went from in about twenty five to thirty percent of trace firearms being within two years of purchase to almost half in twenty twenty one. So it. It, yeah, I guess what the, I mean by small increase is just uh, I, I don't I don't you're right. Um, I don't I don't want to I don't want to mislead anyone. <laughs> it, what I mean is like the overall number of uh, the guns, yeah, most they guns are not is a relatively small a number. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right on that. And I think that the the important thing to, to sort of keep in mind when looking at murder is that murder makes up zero point two percent of all major crimes that are reported to the FBI each year. So it doesn't take a lot of incidents of, hey, you and I get into a fight in 2019 and neither of us have, are carrying a gun. 2021, we get into a fight, both of us are carrying guns, and it leads to a fatal incident that wouldn't have earlier occurred. You get a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand of those incidents, and you have a big change in the number of murders. So it doesn't take right. a lot for such a low base rate crime to see a large percentage change. Yeah. And I do think that your the basic theory that 
police were maybe not necessarily getting better at finding guns during traffic stops or whatever, and there were just more people carrying guns is probably true. It's just uh, connecting that to the increase in people who can pass a background check buying a gun. Uh, that's where I think there's less uh, of a direct uh, connection um, is all. So I don't know that we're very far apart on this point, but no. but uh, that's what I would, that's my main critique for what I would say. And it, it, it circles back to if we had better data, we could point to, okay, you know, we're also seeing this increase in stolen firearms, or there's a correlation between places that are having, you know, increased stolen firearms with increased shootings. Um, but because we don't have enough good vibers could actually produce that data. Um, but it's not produced at a level that allows us to do that. So we're yeah. SOL on that one. So where do you see things headed from here now that we've seen the, you know, obviously you cautioned earlier that just because there's been a decrease in the first six months doesn't mean that we're going to end up at the same point by the end of the year. Um, do, uh, like is, I guess the, I think the big question um, is, was the murder spike just a spike, just a momentary uh, abnormality? Are we headed back to the levels we were at before 2020? Or uh, are we going to see a new a new normal, basically, with much more violence in the United States than we had seen the past 20 years? That's a good question. Um, I, you know, you, you might as well be asking to predict who's going to win the next three Super Bowls. It's it's, I think, really hard to say. Um, I don't think anything about the spike in 2020 and 2021 was inevitable. And I don't think anything about the decline in 2022 and now 2023 bigger is inevitable. And so I think that it is hard to say exactly how far down we'll go. If you told me, you know, reported from the 2025 and said that we sort of stayed at this level and this was the new normal, I would I would say, yeah, that's OK. That makes sense. Or if you told me that we're continuing to decline to, you know, 2014 numbers, I would say, yeah, that that makes sense. Um, and I think that you could probably create a scenario where either thing happens. Um, there are lots of places that like Philadelphia, New York, um, New Orleans, where not only are we seeing a decline, but we're seeing an accelerating decline. And so it's not we're not sort of coming into a plateau we're we're continuing to see a decline. Um, but there are enough places that sort of give you pause. I, one of the things I did is I took gun violence archive data and I split Mississippi shootings between Jackson, Mississippi and the rest of the state. And the rest of the state has seen an increase. Jackson has seen a accelerating decline in shootings. So um, I think that we need to better understand just if this is just big cities that had a big increase that are seeing a big decline this year, um, or is it the same broadness um, that we had in um, in 2020 that broad increase? Are we seeing just the reverse of that, maybe a little less intense? Um, ideally, we want it to be the broad increase decrease everywhere, but we really we can barely describe the big city trend. Explaining it more, I think, is really difficult right now. Okay. And so uh, just a final question here. What are the cities you're going to be watching closest for, uh, you know, to, to give us a sign of, of where this is headed? So I had a New York Times piece probably three or four years ago, maybe even five years ago, that there's four cities that 
are predictive of the national trend. So if you just had, I think it's Chicago, Baltimore, Los Angeles, and either New York, or I think it might be Philadelphia is the fourth city. Um, and I'll have to relook at the piece, but basically there's, there's a handful of cities that you can use that can sort of be predictive of the national trend. All four of those cities are seeing declines, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Chicago, and Los Angeles. Um, so if that continues or it accelerates, then we'll probably feel pretty good that we've seen a, a pretty good national decline. If they sort of revert to the mean and they're, you know, those four cities, they're down, but they're not down huge, then maybe we'll say that it was sort of a, a more of a one-time decline um, that looked really good for the first half of 2023, but couldn't be sustained going forward. So I think those are the types of places that I look. Um, and then the, the cities that are seeing big increases, Memphis, Cleveland, Kansas City, D.C., um, why how can we understand why these are outliers? Is there, is there an explanation? Um, I think Memphis is easier to explain than the other places, but it uh, behooves us to better understand why they're not only are they not going down, they're going up significantly. And so I think that the better we can understand that, the better we can understand what's causing the decline. Do you have a short, uh, just the reason for why you think Memphis is special? Well, you, you look at, all of these cases of going back to police legitimacy after Tyree Nichols was killed. Um, that's when Memphis was seeing a decline and then all of a sudden started to see an increase. And so I really do think it's this combination of people are have people who didn't already trust the police are having less trust in the police to act as an arbiter. And there's probably some been some degree of depolicing as Memphis police department has come under pretty intense criticism um, and so I think a combination of those, everything that happened nationwide in 2020 is happening again in Memphis would be the best explanation. But again, it's only been six months, so we need a lot more time, and a lot more data to be able to say that with a lot more confidence. All right. Well, we'll, we'll have to have you back on maybe uh, I look forward to year and see, see where things ended up, but, uh, hopefully they'll continue in this path because it's obviously good news. Uh, which which is fairly rare uh, yeah. <laughs> the last couple of years. So I'm glad to hear it. Um, if people want to read more of what you've written or, or follow you, where can they do that? Uh, I'm at jasher.substack.com. Um, and I'm also on Twitter uh, at Crimealytics. It, uh, you know, it's mostly just dog pictures at this point, but occasionally there's insightful nuggets in there. Um, and then if people are interested, agedatalytics.com. Um, if you just click on our dashboards button, you can find our year to date murder calculator. And that, that shows a, a comparison. It's got a couple other data points and sort of puts the change in context and, and hopefully is a useful source for people. All right. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being with us. We're going to head over to our news update now. Thanks for having me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer, Jake Fogelman joined of course by reload founder, Stephen Gutowski. How you doing, Steve? I'm doing all right. Jake, how are you? Doing pretty good. Can't complain. Awesome. Uh, I'm actually getting ready to head up to Pennsylvania to go to the farm this weekend and do my uh, annual charity shoot, charity range day um, that that I'm actually somewhat hilariously uh, is comes from a, a celebrity auction that I'm involved with for a, a group called Homes for Our Troops um, that uh, Jake Tapper over at CNN runs. 
and um, he runs the auction, not the not the whole charity. But uh, yeah, we do do this every year. Somebody pays to for um, a range day. They they're usually very generous, and so I try to show them a really good time. And so I'm getting ready to head up there and and do some shooting. It should be a lot of fun. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Get get to spend a day out on the range, and it's for a good cause. It sounds like so. That sounds like a pretty cool deal. Yeah, it's uh, and it's it's wonderful too up there on the farm. And and uh, one of my my parents' friends lets us use their range. Uh, Merrill Walters, he's actually a Reload member, great guy, um, uh, real patriot. So he's uh, he he helps out with with the range day, and we get to shoot his Texas Star and and some of the other fun little elements that he has and. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to be a great time. That's outstanding. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And I'll, I'll keep everybody updated on that. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll put some pictures in the members newsletter and stuff and keep people updated on how it, how it went. All right. And then uh, as we're getting into the news of the week, we'll start with some of the headlines from the newsletter. Uh, first comes from The Trace. And we have a report that from early provisional CDC data, gun deaths appear to have uh, gone down slightly in 2022 after being elevated in 2020 and 2021. It's good news. It is good news. Um, we also have from Mass Live uh, some news about the Massachusetts Democrats' big gun control push, their Bruin response bill that also includes, you know, hardware bans and ghost gun bans. And it's mm. basically an omnibus, everything bagel gun control bill. And there's some procedural disputes happening right now that potentially threatens that bill passing. Yeah, that, that'll be one that we're going to watch closely because it's uh, somehow it's actually much more expansive than the other Bruin response bills. Uh, so it'd be pretty fascinating to see what Massachusetts actually ends up doing there. And then uh, getting into some of the news that we reported this week, you actually had a huge piece talking to several experts, uh, legal experts in the Second Amendment space about what they're expecting to see from the upcoming Rahimi case that we talked about last week. Now that the Supreme Court is going to hear its next gun case. Yeah, I talked to experts from across the sort of ideological spectrum. And, you know, they, they were all pretty unsure about exactly how this is going to come out. Uh, I think that's unique to Bruin. I mean, there were some experts are always, you know, they're, they're always kind of wary to give you a, a definitive answer um, because I guess, you know, it's the, the classic, the more you know about something, the more you, the more uh, you understand how much you don't know. But uh, regardless, they did have a few areas of agreement that I think are, are pretty fascinating. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good long piece that has a lot of direct quotes from these guys. And um, and then, of course, there was we actually had a for for the members. There was one area where a couple of these experts said uh, this law that's being challenged, this domestic violence restraining order gun ban has a particularly weak point to it. And um and I think that could come into play. Mark Smith talked about it last week on the podcast, actually. He's one of the people quoted. But, um, you know, even though, and I actually think Mark got this uh, mixed up, but even though Rahimi meets both of the requirements, um, there was a specific claim that he was dangerous, a specific accusation that he had, uh, you know, assaulted his, the mother of his child. There, there is another kind of domestic violence restraining order that doesn't even require that level of, um, you know, accusation to exist. And both, of course, have significant due process questions because they're civil proceedings instead of criminal ones. But, uh, you know, that that's, I think, a particularly interesting bit. It's something that could be a potential Achilles heel that, uh, you know, I wrote about with some quotes from those experts uh, for the members. 
yeah, it's fascinating stuff and members should go, uh, go over and take a look and read that to, to get the scoop. Uh, but that takes us to our, our main story that we want to talk about this week, um, because we have some new data on gun sales for the last month, the month of June. And it appears that they are down pretty significantly from last year, year over year, something like 20%. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Huge drop off. Um, you know, we haven't really been talking a lot about gun sales in recent months because honestly, they've been fairly stable. They've been declining since 2020, which is what you'd expect, right? It's not surprising because 2020 was this sort of perfect storm in terms of motivating people to buy guns, all the chaos that was happening uh, from the pandemic to the riots to, uh, you know, the election. There was just a lot going on that might make somebody want to go out and uh, buy a gun for self-defense or because they were afraid new gun laws could come into existence, um, you know, and you'd expect that from that point, you're going to have a decline but we've been looking for sort of the new normal, the floor, ever since then. I, I We wrote about this back in 2021 that, you know, oh, are we at this new floor? Because, look, here's we've, we've come down, but we seem to have leveled off a bit. And uh, now it's, uh, it's pretty clear that we haven't really completely leveled off in terms of uh, gun sales in the United States. So, um, you know, where where are we going to level off, I guess, would be the the big question. And what are the implications of that? for not just the gun industry, but the gun rights movement too. Uh, it's something that I wrote about as well for, uh, actually not for members this week. That one is uh, public. Usually our analysis pieces, right? Our member exclusives. But this week, uh, my analysis of the the gun sales situation, that's, that's free for everyone. So anyone who wants to get a taste of what our analysis is like should check that out. Yeah, I, I agree. They should check it out because I think you raised a couple of good points, particularly we talked about, yes, they have leveled off. They're down something like 20% from last June and 50% mm -hmm. from 2020's June, which obviously was the record month uh, because yep. of when it happened to land during the, the midst of the, the COVID pandemic, the George Floyd protests. And obviously the election was a few months away, but still that was on people's minds. Um, but there are some factors that you pointed out in that piece that perhaps maybe could counteract some of this downslide that we're seeing. Um because it's worth pointing out that we, though we are down, gun sales are down, they're still pretty high, right? There's still over a million yeah. sales in a month. And there's been mm -hmm. a, a huge streak of, of a million plus. Yeah, I think it's 47 months. Yeah, right. Which is impressive. Uh, and we're heading into primary season when you pointed out that the current president, Joe Biden, is made gun control a central tenant of his presidency. And there's no expectation that he's going to stop uh, heading into the primary. So as that heats back up, do we see the spike come back, you know, there's just a lot, yeah. of, a lot of factors to consider. I mean, yeah, exactly. That's correct. But to me, that's also one of the things that makes it interesting that there was still a decline, right? Because Joe Biden is sure. currently the president, right? He's, sure. he's, uh, he's not uh, running to be president anymore. He is president and he is, he's not only been a very vocal act, uh, advocate for new gun bans, but also has tried to implement them unilaterally through rulemaking right now. He's run into a lot of problems doing that as we've covered on the show, but uh, you'd think that would still keep the gun sales levels um, from slipping further. Now, again, you're right. They're still, they're still historically high. You're still like 30% up from where you were in 2019. So it's not like the industry is, facing a recession by any means. But um, the fact that you had a 20% drop off from June 2022 to June 2023, that that's a pretty big decline. That's that 
should raise some eyebrows, I think. And, um, you know, it really raises the question, like, where is the, where is the actual floor going to be? Um, now, you know, we are in an off year, unlike 2022. So there's no, right. no election this year. There was an election last year. June 2022 also saw, uh, you know, a new gun control bill actually pass in Congress. Right. And it was it was also the month right before the assault weapons ban passed the House. Uh, obviously, that didn't make it into law, but there's still a lot of a lot more attention on the politics of guns at that point in time than there are right now, frankly. And so, you know, that that could also clue you into that June 2022 is actually a particularly good June for gun sales. And that might be one of the reasons why there was such a decline from last year to this year. Um, but, you know, the trend is still there overall. Because you look at the second quarter numbers, you're still seeing declines across the board. Uh, it's not as severe as 20%. I think it was 6.7%. But, you know, the, the, the trend is clear. And what's not clear is where it's going to settle out. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And uh, your point about uh, last year's be, be, being when the gun control bill passed is well taken. And you have to wonder if perhaps maybe people understand now that we have a split Congress um, yeah. and, 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 and we have the Bruin court, test. Right? Yeah, I was going to yeah. say with the Bruin test and they maybe they feel more comfortable in their that their rights mm -hmm. are secure and they don't feel the, the same urge to go out and buy new guns because they don't think yeah. a, a band is down the pike. But it is worth That's pointing right. out. I mean there's little, there's a lot of stability, which is not, not usually yeah. the, the, you know, both politically and, uh, you know, economically and, and in several other factors, not that, not that everything is perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it's better than it was certainly in 2020, right. Or even yeah. 2021. And so that puts a damper to some degree, I would imagine on, on gun sales. Although my, my last point on this, or actually you, you had, what were you going to say? But yeah, I was just going to say that it's worth pointing out that in a piece I wrote for this week's newsletter that we are seeing places where folks are turning to to new gun sales. Yeah. Um, we have a, a new poll from Siena College uh, polled all of New York residents um, basically and asked them how they were feeling about crime, whether they thought it was a concern. And overwhelmingly, New Yorkers reported being very concerned about crime. Uh, they said, I think, 52 percent said they feared being a victim of crime out in public. And one of the things that they're doing uh, to address this is going to purchase guns for self-defense. 12% uh, of New Yorkers overall said that they went out and purchased a gun in the last year for self-defense. And 17% of New York City residents in particular, which I think is even more interesting just because of you don't really associate gun ownership with New York City very often. But 17% actually said that uh, they actually went and purchased a gun in the last year because of crime. Right. And that, I think, rolls into my final point, actually, which is that, uh, you know, this is a good basis to, to get to, I was going to talk about, so I appreciate uh, you bringing it up. I, it's, it's a very good point. You know, New York is, especially New York City, is not where you expect to see a lot of gun owners because it's very difficult to buy a gun there. And it's only become right. more difficult since Bruin, ironically. And now I think down the line, that'll probably get uh, sorted out and changed around by the courts. But for now, it's certainly true. And, uh, but you are still seeing these, these new gun owners come into the market, new people buying guns. Uh, even in a place like New York. And obviously we had a huge surge of that during the 2020 gun buying spree. And um, that's the other point I think of concern because, you know, not only is there a democratic president who's a very sh uh, staunch gun control advocate, which should, 
historically has juiced gun sales, right? You saw that during the Obama administration. Then you saw a lull during the Trump administration. People called it the Trump slump, right? Uh, and you'd think that Biden being in there, who actually rhetorically is much more um, aggressive on gun control than even Barack Obama was. So, um, you know, there, there should be more incentive. And then you also throw in the fact that there's all these new gun owners. So your floor should naturally be higher than it was before that spike of, of millions of new people buying guns. And it is for now, right? I don't want to get too far out on a limb here, but it is for now. But the continued decline um, from those 2020 levels uh, is fascinating to see and could have implications both for the industry and, as I mentioned earlier, broader political implications. Like, what are these new gun owners uh, doing? Like, are they as engaged as the pre-2020 gun owners? Um, is that, are they less inclined to, uh, you know, get into the hobby aspect of gun ownership and buy more guns? Uh, or, you know, there's just not a, a large percentage doing that yet, maybe? It's hard to say, but, uh, you know, it's something that certainly, I think, uh, needs more more scrutiny from the gun rights movement and the, the industry itself to really understand what's going on. Yeah, no, I think that's actually a really interesting point. Uh, you're not really seeing them, at least, as you said, at least as of yet, reacting yeah. to some of the same trends that you'd expect from longer term gun owners that they have mm -hmm. in the past. So that, I think that's interesting. Yeah, and you know, there's a lot that could be gone into. I, and I discussed it all at length in that analysis piece. Um, uh, you know, perhaps again, like you mentioned, the Supreme Court stepping in with a landmark ruling in favor of gun rights is putting people at ease. You know, certainly could be. And it's not actually an election year in 2023, as much as the primaries are starting to right. percolate. Um, you know, that's not going to be till next year. So we'll, we'll certainly keep an eye on that, as well as all these other stories. So make sure you stick around and keep following the reload. Subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, buy a membership. That helps us a lot. And in fact, if you do buy a membership, you may get to appear on the podcast like we have upcoming right now in a member segment. Okay, it's time for one of my favorite segments, the members segment. This week, we have a member from Illinois, Brad, with us on the show. How are you doing, Brad? Uh, Stephen, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show again. We've got, I think, two weeks in a row now, members segment. I like to do them. I do them every week, honestly, if members <laughs> if members wanted to come on, because it's one of my favorite uh, segments to do just because it's nice to meet some of you guys who are supporting our, our work and then also get unique stories about, you know, how people got into firearms or got interested in, in firearms journalism and analysis. Uh, so why don't we start there? How, what, uh, what was your particular journey, I guess, into the gun ownership world? Um, well, I mean, we can start, uh, you know, give or take 10 years ago. Uh, I was in a conversation with a friend of mine at work and he mentioned, oh, yeah, I, yeah, I have a gun. I'm like, you know, and, and, and my thought was like, why would anybody need a gun? What? Why? And uh, so, you know, okay, fine. We put a pin in that. That was 10 years ago. Pretty common uh, reaction, I think, for a lot of, a lot of Americans. Um, you know, there's plenty of people who don't own guns and don't have a desire to do it uh, until something maybe comes up and changes their mind, right? Well, yeah. And, you know, I'd never really needed or, or thought about it even. So I was like, okay, no problem. And then, uh, you know, give or take seven years ago, uh, my buddy was a different friend was like, Hey, Brad, we've got to go to the range and go shooting. I'm like, oh, I don't know. That's not really my thing. But 
But I told him, I was like, you know what? What you could do is show me how to safely disarm a, a pistol. I I didn't know that. I had no idea. But I was like, well, if that's that could be, you know, something useful. So he's like, no problem. Come on over. So the next time I was over at his house, he uh, he field stripped his Berenda 92 FS, put all the pieces in front of me. I looked at them, put them, you know, put them back together, showed me the process of disarming it and, you know, popping the, you know, just you, you rack the slide or you, you, you drop the magazine, rack the slide. And and I was just looking at him like, that's it. He's like, yeah, that's it. And, you know, at that point, I was like, you know, there's there's no mystery. There's no there's no mystique. It's just a mechanical device. And I was like, you know, I could I could learn to use this if I wanted to. And, uh, you know, so that that thought starts percolating in my head for a little bit. And, uh, you know, uh, a little while later, I was like, you know, it's it's time to take that plunge. And, uh, you know, I, I I bought my first pistol. And, uh, you know, from that point forward, I've been, you know, very much enjoying learning how to use it properly. Um, uh, you know, I've I've taken a number of defensive pistol classes. Um, you know, I, I try to to keep my ear to the ground in terms of, you know, podcasts uh, and 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 reading books and stuff like that. So it's it's been a fun journey. And, uh, you know, it just, it struck me that it, it wasn't, you know, an instant, you know, the light turned on moment. It was, for me, it was a slow, you know, there was a rocker switch and somebody's slowly turning on that bulb. And, uh, but it, it, that, that's, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. I mean, you know, yeah. it was, that, it is a good journey, I guess. Yeah, I mean that's that's interesting, right? And I think uh, if you go back, if people listen to some of the member segments we've had uh, since we've been doing the podcast, um, you'll get a wide variety, right, of how people came to be gunners. Um, you know, you had people who w- were born into families that had guns, and they were always around guns growing up, and that's how they learned an appreciation for it. You had people who. Uh, when 2020 happened, the pandemic came on, the riots happened in the summer. Uh, you know, there, there was uh, all of the chaos that that happened that year. Yeah, busy um, year. <laughs> it was it was a heck of a year, that's for sure. Uh, but that drove that that drove a lot of people to consider buying a gun for the first time, and 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 then go out and do it. And we've had people on the show who've who fall into that camp. Um, and then you know, I think there's people like you, and and really your story is very sim- fairly similar to mine uh, in some ways. Because I didn't grow up around firearms necessarily, uh, we didn't. I think my mom had a little twenty-two rifle, but I never shot it. Uh, we had friends who had guns um, and or hunted and, and so forth. But I I wasn't into guns until later in life, uh, yeah. after college, um, and it really was a sort of slow build-up for me as well. You know, I was afraid of firearms. Um, I think growing up. In, not in the sense that I, if someone was going to shoot me, I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania, right? A low crime area. And so it wasn't that kind of concern, but there was the recoil, right? It's fear of recoil. I don't know if you had that at all, um, but it was something that, that bothered me for a long time until I shot a gun. And my first gun that I shot was a 12 gauge shotgun, which is not really what you would 
you're, you're going from zero to a hundred on that one. Yeah. It's not really what you would give to a beginner. Um, but it didn't actually hurt, uh, especially if you taught to hold it properly and shoot it properly. And we were shooting skeet at, uh, like a cabin and it was fun because I hit the skeet and it, you know, the, the skeet disintegrates, the clay pigeons go away and it's, you know, it's exhilarating experience. It's a lot of fun. And then I slowly got into guns from there, you know, I bought, and I didn't know much and I didn't have friends that were really into guns either. So it was, it was a relatively long learning process from that point, but I, it kind I'd of like to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I was going to say though, um, I got lucky. I fell in with a number of people that, that knew what they were doing, um, and, and were very, um, willing to show me mm. the right yeah. ways of doing things. Um, and you know, I had some private lessons right off the bat and, you know, I've, I have a, a number of really good resources, at least in my opinion, you know, in terms of local businesses and, and, mm. and where I've taken classes. So I, you know, it's it, important. Yeah. It It is. You really, you really can't ever forget what it is you're holding in your hands there. Mm -hmm. um, and you got to do it right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, and, and that's a, that's a much better way to get into it. I think than, than me, which was just like feeling it out, uh, taking some classes, of course. Um, but I didn't have friends who were super into guns or anything at that moment in time when I first started doing it. And so, uh, I mean, of course, a lot of mine also came from, you know, as like a journalistic pursuit, right? Like I started doing more stories about guns as I became more interested in them personally. Yep. Um, and so, uh, you know, I got, I got to do a lot of, ex you know, firearm, ex I got to have a lot of experience with firearms through my work. Um, so it was, you know, it's an, that's probably pretty different from most people, I guess, and how, how they would come up. It's, uh, uh, harder to see that happening for me if I, because I didn't have the, a lot of the friends who were, uh, gun enthusiasts. Um, and instead I got into it through work. So, uh, I don't know how, how much I would have gone down the, the rabbit hole, so to speak, if I, um, if I hadn't made friends later on who were more interested in firearms. So, uh, it's certainly an interesting experience, but what, so tell me a little bit more about, uh, you know, where, what your journey has been like since you got that first gun, you know, 10 years ago, do you have, uh, have you, uh, gotten a concealed carry license. You said you've taken some classes. What, yeah. You know, after that first gun, where did it lead? Well, you know, you got to learn how to use it and you know, the, the right places in, uh, you know, classes. And actually the, the very first class I took was, uh, with a friend who owns a range and it's actually in the back of a semi trailer. <laughs> and it was a nice. great, cause it was a private range, you know, it not very big, and it was great for conversation. It was great for, you know, just basic learning to aim, point, shoot, do, you know, get just to get you on the map. Um, and then, you know, there's a number of, of uh, ranges, you know, locally I took, um, you know, because now I've been bit by the bug. You know, you mm. I, once yeah. you're there, I can't I was like, I need to know more. And uh, so, you know, I've taken five defensive pistol classes. Um, there's, uh, a, I, I took a night shoot pistol class, which was really, really telling, yeah. uh, you know, how to use flashlights and, yeah. and everything important, um, often overlooked too. You know what I, what blew me away was just how much 
the smoke obscures the flashlight, you know, like you just can't see for just a, a few moments after, after a shot. It, it was, I never would have thought of that if I hadn't actually experienced it myself. And, um, and then uh, I've participated a number of times in a, there's a defensive pistol league that we do. And our, our instructor sets up three different scenarios each, each time we go, which he's a, He's a cunning bastard, that guy. He he's really clever with some of the things that he sets up, and uh, and I love it because it's very you know it teaches you a lot about how you might react and and about the way you perceive situations. Mm. And uh, and as far as the concealed carry, yes, I have that. I've had that uh, for you know five, six, seven years now. And um, am I carrying? I'm wading into it. I, I I have carried before, and it's it's something that um, I for the longest time I was just reading and learning about it. I you know I, I do things in baby steps, and you got to be comfortable with where you're at, and then add another piece to that puzzle. And uh, so yeah, I'm I'm uh, learning to carry. I, I think probably in some ways, you know. You know your your ongoing saga is 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 fun to listen to, but I'm you know figuring out where where on my person the best place is and you yeah. know adjusting cant and stuff like that. I think that's something that's super common too. Right, is uh, a lot of people will end up with a drawer full of old holsters because they didn't work out quite the way they expected them to. Yeah, it's, uh, it's one of the parts of carrying that is more difficult. It's like how is this actually going to work for me? Uh, you know, you know, there's good resources out there, active self-protection. Uh, I do their podcast, but they also have fantastic resources on, you know, carrying guns and also on actual self-defense encounters, of course, too. But, uh, you know, there's some things that exist out there to give you some very basic rules on what kind of holster you should go with. But beyond that, it's, there's so many options and it's, you got to really zero in for your personal setup. I, I think you're right. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta just. Try stuff and see what works. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, that's uh, that's pretty interesting. So you uh, you've really in that ten years or so come a long way from thinking, you know, why would anyone ever need a gun to now potentially carrying a gun on yourself? And I think that's not an uncommon journey either, right? I mean, I don't think you're alone in that. No. Well, and and to be frank, uh, I especially like introducing other people now, you know, cause I'd like them to get bitten by the bug, so to speak. Um, you know, if, if anybody I know, you know, is interested and they, they come ask me some, some gun questions, I'm like, you know what, let's just go to the range or, you know, like, yeah. like, like I'll go over to their house and, and show, do the same thing that was done for me, take apart, you know, and just safely show them the hardware so that they know what it is to hold it. And then, you know, we'll make a time and go to the range. And it, it's a lot of fun. Just like the, the guys from Open Source Defense, they're always like, take a newbie shooting. Yeah. Those, you know, really, I love those guys because they, 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 they make a lot of really good points in all of their, their, their writings. But I agree with take a newbie shooting. Take somebody, introduce somebody to the, to the, to the activity. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of writing, what, what was it that uh, got you into the reload? Um, you know what? Well, you mentioned the active self-protection podcast earlier because I, I kind of picked up on both of those at the same time. 
I'm like, hey, that's the same guy. It's over here. And over. So I was like, all right. And um, I just, I, you know, I found you do a really good job of picking your words. You, you do a really good job. You know, I, this is my opinion. Um, but I, I think you do a really good job at the reload of, of, as, as you say, sane, sober, you know, it's balanced. It's not, you know, I, I, I hate spin, you know, and I don't get that from you. Uh, the reload is, is very much, in my opinion, a really, you know, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's good information. It's just yeah. plain old good information and the analysis. Here's, here's what happened. Here's what to think of, you know, here's what, not what to think of it, but here's, here's how we digest it. Right. And uh, that's, that's worth its weight in gold to me. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the line we try to draw, right? Like we try, uh, most publications will have an opinion section that'll tell you what they think you should think about something or how things ought to be. Um, but we try to stick with analysis, right? Because we want to report the news, break the news, hopefully as often as we possibly can get stories out there that wouldn't otherwise get coverage, but then also give you, a, you know, the realistic take of what this means or what it could mean or the implications for it without trying to beat you over the head with our political opinions, which, you know, everyone has them. We have them too. I have them, but uh, I find it's more valuable to give people you know, an honest appraisal of what's going on rather than what's happening rather than what I think should happen. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So well, that comes through loud and clear. It's always uh, very encouraging when, when I hear that from members, because that's exactly what we're trying to do. And, uh, and I'm, and I'm hopeful that there's a, uh, you know, a, a large audience that's looking for that kind of work, whether they're people who own guns or, or people who don't own guns, I mean, anyone who's just interested in where this, where this uh, issue is, is at and where it's headed. You know, I, I hope we can be a, a resource for for anyone in that in that group, whatever your political beliefs might be. Um, but, yeah, we, well, look, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story with us and giving us a little bit of insight into who you are and who our membership is here at the Reload. And um, and and, you know, if anyone else wants to become a member, they can go over to our our website and look at our membership options. We've got yearly memberships and monthly memberships. The yearly is a little bit better of a deal. You get sort of two months for free with that one, but uh, it literally is what keeps us going. That is how we fund our reporting. That is how we pay uh, myself and my, and, and anyone else who's writing for the reload or doing work for us. So uh, it's, it's extremely valuable, but also at the same time, I, I believe that we're offering uh members exclusive content that is is actually valuable and uh, worth the money that you're paying so it's not just to support us though it does support us you also get value out of it and uh, of course you'll get access to this podcast a day early and of course the opportunity to appear on the show just like uh, this segment here with brad so uh yeah if you're interested in that head on over and check out our memberships and if you're not at that point yet where you want to buy a membership you can also help us by sharing this podcast rating it on wherever you're listening to it, um, leaving a comment on YouTube, uh, anything like that will help us. So uh, please feel free to do so if you can. But that's all we've got for this week. We will be back again with you real soon.